Good morning. Good to see you all. We are in John chapter 1, so turn there in your, in your Bibles or um, in your apps, whatever you have. This is the third sermon in this relatively new series that we've started up in the Gospel of John. So as we continue to work our way through these texts, um, it'll be a, this is a long journey, but we are taking big steps. So today, 17 verses. So John chapter 1, verse 35 is where we will begin. Um, before we get into that, um, just a couple reminders as we are reading this text, I think if you're following along in the Abide um, reading plan that we have and spending time, there's obviously a lot of flexibility if you're spending time in this text. Um, you've been in this text this week, um, either verse by verse, day to day, or, um, or reading the whole passage at a time. There's, um, there's, yeah, obviously flexibility for however you want to do that. So um, before we get into the sermon this morning, um, just a few reminders. Um, John is the author, um, but he is not John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is the John that we've spent a lot of time in this first, um, first couple verses, first two sermons talking about. Um, he is writing this account, John the author, writing this account probably to give his perspective in addition to the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that he is at least familiar with if he hasn't already um, read them. So he's giving his unique perspective. This first chapter, and really a lot of this book, is soaked in imagery from Genesis, um, and I think it can be rightly stated that John's gospel is his view of Jesus' work to do the recreation. So God created the world back in Genesis, and then sin came in and broke that um, and changed everything, and then Jesus comes, and he is doing his work to um, initiate what is the recreation of, of the cosmos. Uh, and this accounts for some of the references to Genesis. Some of those are really explicit, like how John begins chapter 1 with, in the beginning. And then some of those are implicit with um, how you see in this first chapter, there's this seven-day creation. Um, there's this reflection of seven days of creation that ends with um, chapter 2, we'll get to next week, with this celebration, this wedding in Cana where, Jay, um, where uh, Jesus performs his first miracle, his first sign. The purpose of this book is stated in John 20, towards the end of the book that we'll eventually get to. Let me just read that. Um, John says in John 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the question, the obvious question as we get into the text this morning is, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name? And so that's a question that's going to re repeatedly come up as we work our way through this, this gospel book. Um, that's the question we ought to ask this morning as we get into this. So verse um, 35, I'm going to read our text now. So follow along with me. I'm just going to read the entire passage, verse 35 through 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. 
Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak followed and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So, that's an awesome text, but there's some confusing, I think, initially, there's some confusing pieces of this because I read this and I think, what causes Nathaniel to go from this kind of skeptical person, can any good thing come out of Nazareth, and then Jesus, all he says is, I saw you under a fig tree, and then he completely does a 180 and, um, and calls Jesus his king. Um, what does this last verse mean about seeing heaven opened and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man? Who is that? What is that all about? So we're going to get into this text this morning and work our way through that. Um, but we'll start, start at the beginning here. So number one, if you're taking notes, um, observation number one, the first disciples... Um, even these first disciples are primarily a result of individual outreach of evangelism by others. Um, John, the ba- John the Baptist directs his disciples away from himself and to Jesus. And there is an entire application just in that, in that reality. So look at verse 36. He looked, um, John the Baptist looked and saw Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And John the Baptist, his two disciples, hear him say this, and they just go follow Jesus. And that is contrary to our human nature. Um, whether it's social media or just um, our tribe, the way we develop cliques and groups, human nature is to like hoard people to ourselves, to our tribe, to our team. And we see John right here um, have his two disciples, one that we know is Andrew from this text, the other one that we think is John, the author, um, but is unnamed so far. We think it's Andrew and John, and he just lets them go, and he's apparently um, pleased and has directed them to follow after Jesus. John the Baptist is not hoarding people to follow him. Man, that is a, I feel like that's a whole sermon right there. We can spend a lot of time hoarding people to our particular group, our particular theological streams, and all these things, and we 
um, convince ourselves, even human nature does this, we convince ourselves that you ought to follow me as I follow Christ because I'm following Jesus the right way. Um, And that is, I think, quite foolish. And so what John the Baptist does here is he lets his two disciples first go after Jesus. One of um, the observations as we continue on, we see that theme not, um, not stop at John the Baptist, but it continues. So look at verse 40 and 41. Um, it's not Jesus who goes to Simon, but it's his brother. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So, Simon, um, so Andrew goes right away to his brother Simon and says to him, we have found the Messiah. So you see discipleship, you see this multiplication happen through the word of mouth of this guy, Andrew. The next one, verse 43, Jesus decides to go to Galilee. He finds Philip and says to him, follow me. And then in verse 45, this fifth disciple that we have, Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, we have found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. And who him is? He says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So quick math, if you're tracking, we've got the two disciples of John the Baptist. Um, One of them, Andrew, brings um, his brother Simon. And then you have Jesus goes out and finds Philip, and Philip brings um, his other acquaintance, Nathaniel. So out of these five disciples, only one of them has been directly um, called by Jesus. The other four were directed to Jesus by others. So from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, discipleship, is happening, evangelism is happening through the words of other people that are directing people to Jesus. And um, this just reminds me, as we read over the last couple months, we read through this book, Evangelism, by Max Stiles. That last chapter I read this week, I was so encouraged by that because, um, as he writes, he talks about evangelism, how it's not perfect, um, it's awkward, there's hope for me as like an awkward evangelist who no evangelistic conversation is you're talking to people who might not know Jesus, some that you're really sure that they don't know Jesus, and you're talking about that. No conversation is exactly the same. Um, But we see hope here that even for these guys, they don't even know really what um, what they're pointing people to. They're just saying, hey, this is the one. It's the Messiah. Their vision of what that Messiah is gonna do, they come with an agenda. he goes to Nathaniel. Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, this is one from the Old Testament, from the law and the prophets. Um, and he's like, um, Nathaniel has these questions, which Philip just says, come and see, like how Pat introduced us this morning. Observation number two. First, that we see that observation number one, um, multiplication is happening by other people coming. Number two, Jesus meets these disciples with truth and hope. And so two in particular, let's look at this. Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. So as Jesus interacts with these disciples, um, Simon and Nathaniel in particular, he first meets them with truth and then gives them hope to follow that. And you can imagine Andrew going to his brother Simon right after telling him that they finally identified the Messiah um, you can, I can see Andrew saying to Simon, hey, we found him, the Messiah. This is the guy who's going to help us get liberty from the Romans. Don't forget your sword, because, like, it's happening. We're, we're about to do this thing. And um, the title of Messiah 
that Andrew's using, I think, to appeal to Simon to come on, come on, this is him. This is the king who's going to give us liberty shows that their hope is that this Messiah, this person, um, is going to help us give respect back to our nation of Israel. We're going to make Israel great again. Um, That's what he's thinking. And so as Simon comes to Jesus, Jesus sees him and says, you are Simon, the son of John. And then he meets him with hope, but you will be called Cephas. Gives him a new name. That is an unusual thing. To rename somebody um, is, um, is an authoritative move. So why would he do that? And what's really going on? What's the purpose of renaming this guy Simon? And as we continue to read in this gospel and in the other accounts, what we find out about Simon is he is a rash, impulsive person. He tends to speak before really thinking. Um, He goes and he even rebukes Jesus at one point. And Jesus um, responds to him and says, get behind me, Satan. On this first meeting, Jesus said, you are Simon, the son of John, and reminds him of his reputation but then promises him, but you will be called Peter. You will be called Cephas. That's an Aramaic word and a Greek word that both mean a rock. You will be changed into this steadfast person. I'm going to change you, Peter. So his truth is that he calls Simon out for who he really is, who his reputation is, and then promises him that he will change him. So Instead of coming and saying, hey, Simon, you're right. Thank you. I'm happy to have your help in fixing everything out there. His first interaction with Simon is to say, I'm not fixing everything that's out there. I'm going to fix you. I'm going to change you, Peter. We see that replicated in another way with this next disciple, Nathaniel, who comes to him in verse 45. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Nathaniel seems like a different character than Simon because Philip appeals to him not to call Jesus the Messiah, but he appeals to him and says, hey, we found the one, the promised one in the Old Testament. And then Nathaniel's response, I resonate with this, with this disciple Nathaniel because I'm a pretty sarcastic kind of a cynical person myself. So I resonate with that. And he says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And um, these guys are, they're humans after all. They're like us. Um, And I think we can sympathize with Nathaniel's comments um, specifically because it seems like Nathaniel is from Bethsaida, which appears to be like the Windsor, Colorado of Galilee. Um, And then he says, you know, can any good thing come out of Greeley, that town over there? Um, and if you chuckle at that, I mean, it's even funnier in a Windsor church if you're preaching on that this morning. So I've been waiting a year and a half for one of those jokes. So Jesus meets Nathaniel with truth and hope, truth of who he, who he, Jesus is, and then hope for the future for Nathaniel. Jesus says to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. So Jesus, knowing Nathaniel's initial reaction that Jesus was from Nazareth um, and his cynical or even disrespectful response, Jesus commends Nathaniel for his transparency. 
says, oh, you know, we've got a straight shooter here. In the King James Version, this reads, in whom there is no guile. There's nothing corrupted in here. You're getting um, potent, his potent feelings. No manipulation, no bait. And Jesus says to him, um, you will see greater things than these. So, verse 48, Nathanael said to him, right as he reacts, Jesus says, behold, there's this, there's this true Israelite, no fake. Jesus, and Nathanael says, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So, I remember memorizing this as a kid, before, uh, before I, way before I was a believer, um, I memorized um, this passage in our youth group, and it just never really made sense to me what's so impressive about just seeing somebody sitting under a tree or standing under a tree. That didn't make any sense to me. Um, and so as we read into this, I don't think we really know exactly what that means. It could be as simple as that, but I don't think that that would in and of itself elicit this response from Nathaniel. So under the fig tree could actually be like an idiomatic reference to Nathaniel's studying of the Old Testament law, which makes sense of Peter appealing to Nathaniel, hey, come see this guy, the one that you've been studying about, this promised one. Or it could be just referencing a spiritual experience that Nathaniel possibly had while being under a fig tree where he was all alone, um, where he had this experience. But there's something inside. There's some sort of inside communication that Jesus has with Nathaniel. And Nathaniel responds when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel responds, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So first he says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? There's skepticism. And Jesus says, you're a true Israelite, which Nathaniel accepts. Yeah, I'm an Israelite. And then Nathaniel calls him, you are the King of Israel. So from skepticism to calling him the Son of God, my King, in a matter of moments. Jesus replies, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So he answers him with hope. You will see much more than this. Buckle up. Um, that is, this is just the beginning. And then he continues with what I think is the most profound statement in our passage today, that Jesus is the Son of Man. So look at verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what can that possibly mean? Who is the Son of Man? So as we read the Gospel of John and other Gospels, this is the term that Jesus uses to refer to himself most consistently. He calls himself the Son of Man, um, almost in the third person, and he's referring to himself as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the promised one. And what this specific title means is profound. It's wonderful. He refers to himself as the Son of Man because <clears throat> he is the second Adam. He is the ultimate human, not just any child, not just any human, but he is the Son of Man. John brings this out in particular in verse 14 that we were in a couple weeks ago. The Word, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John is speaking about this Word, the Logos, Jesus, God's um, ultimate expression of what, who he is that we can see, we can hear, we can even touch. 
Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. So going back to the Son of Man, there's three key references I want to touch on as we bring this together. The first one is way back in Genesis, Genesis 3, and I'll just review it. You don't have to turn there. But in Genesis 3, we have this account. The first man, Adam, fails in the garden. He disobeys God's command by eating the forbidden fruit. He doesn't take dominion over the serpent um, like he was commanded to. He's tempted by Satan, um, and he believes the lie. And then after he sins, he blames his wife. And he says to God, you know, and he blames God, you know, this woman that you gave me, you know, it's not my fault. Adam fails in the garden in an epic way. But Jesus recognizes that in all the ways that Adam failed in the garden and changed the world, he would be victorious. In contrast, Jesus obeys God's command. He's tempted by Satan in the wilderness, but doesn't believe the lies. He quotes scripture and truth back to him. In the garden, Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says to God, not my will, but yours be done. He takes the sin of his bride instead of blaming her like um, our father Adam did in the Garden of Eden. Jesus takes the sin of his bride on his shoulders. He is the true and infinitely better Adam, not just another human, but he is the son of man, what Adam should have been in the garden. Second, the text that Jason opened our service with um, was from Daniel 13 through 14, where Daniel sees this vision. So it's not a um, very well-known text, but that is the reference that Jesus is using to refer back to himself as the Son of Man, the one who is um, the king before the ancient of days, who is God. So we have this vision of Christ, um, God's pre-incarnate Son, who always has been co-eternal with the Father, um, that's Jesus, who is now incarnate in this gospel. But he refers to himself back, I'm that one from Daniel's vision. I'm the one who's the king over everything, the son of man. I think Jesus doesn't use the title Messiah because he's avoiding the political emotion of that term, this Messiah, this predictable response that would have been a riot or a coup, this political rebellion, because Jesus' mission when he came to earth was not simply to conquer Rome. His mission was far more transcendent, to restore his people's relationship with God. So the agenda that these disciples are coming to Jesus with is like, finally, somebody who's going to give us respect. He's going to rally us. We're going to be an army, and we can throw off these um, terrible Romans that um, are corrupting our land. However, the true enemy, death, is far greater than this little Roman Empire, which Jesus understands and the, the disciples will learn over these years. So where is Rome today? It's dead and gone. But Jesus has conquered death itself, and he is reigning as king until all his enemies are under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15. We are thankful that Jesus did not raise an army and throw off the Roman Empire because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if we only had hope in just this life, we would be miserable. Jesus says to Nathaniel and those who are listening, something better than just knowing your thoughts and your whereabouts is going to be revealed here. You're going to see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does that mean? So we've got this identity of the Son of Man, but now we have this 
picture of angels ascending and descending. So this is a reference back to Genesis 28. So, again, without turning there, I think I can summarize this. Um, But if you go back there and read, in Genesis you have, um, you've got Abraham and his son Isaac, and Isaac's son Jacob. Jacob, unlike Nathaniel, is a deceiver. He's deceptive um, and in a lack of faith. Instead of believing God's promise to him, he takes it on his own, goes out and deceives his brother Esau, steals his birthright by lying to him, deceiving his father, deceiving his brother. Um, And then his mom kind of kicks him out and says, hey, you need to go find a wife. And so Jacob is in the wilderness. He's on his way towards his uncle Laban's house. He runs out of time, lays down to sleep, and has this vision. And so I'm going to read this story um, so you can get this picture of the vision, that um, this dream that Jacob has as he lays down. Um, he takes a stone, uses it as a pillow, and then has this, uh, has this dream. So Genesis 28, 11. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, all and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I am done, until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jesus referencing this dream that Jacob has from way back, this is... um, 2,000 years, uh, yeah, 2,000 years before this, Jesus references this all the way back in Genesis. And he is saying, you will see me, Jesus, the God-man, open up heaven so that earth and heaven will once again be linked through me. If you were impressed that I could know your whereabouts, Nathaniel, this little detail about your life being under the fig tree, Get ready, because that is just the beginning. So as we conclude, we ask this question that we asked at the beginning. Do you believe, do I believe, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you can have life in his name? We tend to come to Jesus with all of our hearts, desires, all of our agendas for what we want him to do. We want him to use his power our way for our purposes. And not just in salvation. Um, I don't just want him to give me like the stamp of approval to be in heaven someday when I die, but I want Jesus to use his power for my purposes tomorrow, whether that's election day on Tuesday, whether that's um, city council stuff. We've got an agenda that we often bring to Jesus. Some of us, I think, might be a little bit more sanctified than to say it quite like that. Um, So 
we are able to say, you know, give credit, but at the, at the end of the day, we all have agendas. We all have things that we want God to do. Because I want God to make this world, this city, look the way I want it to look. That's, that's part of my human nature. But I think what we see in this text is that Jesus is calling us to follow him in his mission that's so much bigger than just fixing everything that's wrong in my perspective. I convince myself that if I can manage my response, I can control outcomes. That's rational, it's dependable. These disciples' zealous desire to see Romans killed and freedom for their country is no different than my sanctified desire to see God bless me financially, so of course I can give a lot, because that's how we always, that's my self-talk. I think others might feel that way. The desire that the Messiah would restore the kingdom of Israel and make Israel great, um, once again, restore that kingdom of David, is no different than my desire for health, my desire for this ideal spouse, my desire for kids who grow up to not embarrass me. That's what I really want, right? My desire to receive respect from this community that I live in. And all of those things are short-sighted and indicators that I lack belief. Jesus' first response to Simon Peter, indicated by this name change, is not, good job, Peter, you brought your sword, we've got an army to recruit. But his statement is, you've got a reputation, and I'm going to change you. The profound issue that Jesus is coming to resolve is not primarily out there in that broken world. He'll get to that eventually. Jesus will reign until all his enemies are under his feet. But the main thing that he came to do in this first advent is to restore the brokenness between us and God. He does that by sacrificing himself on our behalf and offering that peace with God through belief in him. He's going to change you and me, and that change will result in a type of people who are satisfied with Christ as the author of our lives. We're grateful for our bank account sizes as they are. We will be thankful for health as we have it. We will be working to obey him so that I am the better spouse that my marriage needs. I'm humbled so that I am the child that honors my parents um, as um, instead of just demanding that my kids make me unembarrassed and proud. So, let us release our agenda for what we think God should be doing. Let's embrace his mission and his kingdom. From Genesis 1 to the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28, uh, we see that Jesus' command is to fill the earth with the knowledge of God. Jesus says to bring to him all who are sick and thirsty and broken and hungry, and he will give them the rest that he has given you if you've believed in him. And finally, don't underestimate the humble beginnings of a little church plant in Nazareth, Colorado. Um, the Son of Man has been victorious in the garden, and he is bringing to fruition his victory in his time. And may he receive all the glory for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness in authoring our stories. They are not how we would write them. Um, and if we wrote our stories, they would be so boring. May you receive the glory for what you're doing in our hearts 
in our lives, in this church, and in this city. May that all point to you. May we take no credit, no glory for ourselves. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.